0: The following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. If you're new with us, we've been in a series on the Minor Prophets, which is the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and today we're finishing up that study by studying uh, the book of Malachi, not Malachi. Okay, so it is Malachi. Uh, I grew up as I had a, we were in a Bible drill one time and, and, uh, they called out Malachi and this girl looked up and she said, you mean Malachi? And it's never forgot, I've never forgot that, you know. Uh, of course, I always got beat in the Bible drills. I could never find books in the Bible. Terrible at it. So if you want to find where Malachi is, (laughs) go to Matthew and go back one book, okay? Uh, that's where we're going to be today. Um, it is said that patience is a virtue. And it is um, probably never more true than it is in the 21st century right now, how true that really is. I, I'm I'm sold, so and I think many of you are as well. Where you can remember, um, like mowing grass because you wanted to get paid 50 cents for mowing the grass, that might buy you a couple gallons of gas, right? Uh, but saving up your monies and your your money and your dollars and all the things you had because you wanted to go buy yourself an album. An eight track tape. Anybody here, right? Remember those days, right? And you want to, and you, and you remember how to, you had to wait. You know, it'd be like, I don't know, five bucks and you had to work to save up money to be able to go to the store. Your parents had to drive you to the record store. In our town, it was called Goodies. Maybe that was for you guys here as well. And they'd drive you down to the store and you'd go search out for the eight track tape. If it was there, if it was there, you could buy it. If it wasn't, you had to do this weird thing. You had to wait, and it was, a, and you couldn't search their inventory online. And then you got the, if you found it, you then waited in line, and they had like two cashiers that were there. And then they checked you out, and then you could go home. And probably your parents didn't have an eight-track deck in their car. You'd go home with your makeshift deck and plug it in, right? My first one was Sticks. May remember Sticks? Plugging that bad boy in and sitting down in my house and just thinking, this is the sweetest moment of ever, right? Yet today, I mean, I got Spotify Premium. I mean, are you kidding me with that deal? I mean, I can just type in a song and go. Yet, I mean, Def Leppard. It's, it's on now. Like it's on, right? And I'm thinking, unbelievable how quick it is. It's right at your fingertips. No need to wait. And I and I know if you're like I am, if there's no Wi-Fi, if your cells down and you can't download that song, the like, what are we doing here? I mean, the impatience that just takes over. I mean, uh, some cities in our country, this is sh- just crazy. I mean, Amazon will deliver to them within an hour. I mean, it's not Roseburg, and it's most certainly not Glide. I tell you that, right? I mean, I heard something Amazon the other day said, next day shipping. I got it four like four days later, and I was ticked off. Like, what are we doing? I'm paying for Amazon Prime for a reason. Right? I mean, we all feel you got Instacart. I mean, this is a crazy thing. You can tell them what to groceries you want, and they deliver it to your house. And they give you within like a time frame when it's going to be. And I've talked with some of you who've done this, and you're ticked off if it doesn't come in that time frame. I would be too. I mean, you pay for it. Or you order the stuff at Freddy's, and you go driving in, and you can pull into the little spot, and they then just you just, ping, hit a button, and it opens up your trunk, and they bring out your groceries, and they tell you when you're going to be there. And if they're late... Boy, Katie, bar the door now. we got an issue. (laughs) You know, right? I mean, patience is a virtue. If stuff is delayed, watch out. But listen, waiting on God is a completely different level of patience. We lose sight of the fact that God's timing more than likely most times is not our timing. And he moves at a much slower pace than us. He's never late. He's always on time, but it just moves at a different time. <clears throat> right? We've all had these moments. I mean, the promotion that you longed for, you prayed for, you believed you are going to get, didn't come to fruition. The health diagnosis came back, right? It came back worse. You got a phone call from your doc. Things are bad. But because of this thing that we now call the Affordable Care Act that nobody can actually afford... and you can't get an appointment, you're now four months delayed to get an appointment, and you're like, "What? not this important? You said it was worse, so I gotta wait four months. Okay, patience. The longing for a new baby takes a hit with each passing month and every negative test. The desire to be married, for those of you that are single, grows heavy each year with every year of singleness, wondering, is this ever gonna happen? And doesn't it feel like that the longer you have to wait on God, the easier it is to question Him? Is He really good? Does He have a perfect plan? Will He really provide for my every need? Does He really love me? It seems easier to get skeptical than to be patient, doesn't it? Well, that's exactly what was happening to the people in Malachi's day the very last book of the Old Testament. They'd finished the work of rebuilding the temple. They'd finished the city walls. Their city is now back to kind of norm where they could potentially start getting things done. But there was no sign of the prophetic promises being fulfilled that God had seemingly told them. No sign of the priest king coming that Zechariah had told him. No sign of restoring Israel to its former glory. And in the waiting, they questioned God. And listen, it's a great book for us. It's a great book for us. Because we we wait and we long for God to do in our nation what He used to do. <laughs> Could He turn this ship around? You know, bring back the good old days, but He hasn't. With each passing election, you can feel people that I know of in different political spheres just getting hopeless and lost and wondering where is God in all of this. We long for God to bring what we believe is a promised revival that we think is supposed to happen, but it hasn't happened and we find ourselves crying like it does in the book of Revelation, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, but He doesn't. And all the while, things don't change. They actually get seemingly get worse. See, it's easy to become skeptical while we're waiting on God. And it's easy in our skepticism to begin to question God and forget our obligations to the God of the universe and become haphazard And sloppy with our faith, the things that we actually believe in, the things that we affirm about. It's easy to forget God's love for us and in turn start compromising in areas we never thought we'd ever compromise. As we look at Malachi this morning, we're going to see a skeptical questioning people being addressed by God. And here's what we're going to see. If you're new with us, you should have got a bulletin and it'll have a a big idea on the outline Hopefully you got one. I, hopefully we had enough for you. Here's the big idea, and then we're gonna we're gonna read this, and I want you to we're gonna read this a couple times. I want to look at Colossians three just to give you an overlay of what this kind of looks like. <clears throat> God calls us His people to revere Him, be faithful to Him, and give Him our best. God calls us to re, to revere Him. Be faithful to Him and give Him our best. Now, let's turn to Colossians 3. I don't think that's on the screen, though, M, is it? It is? Okay, great. M M got it up on the screen for us. So Colossians 3, look with me at verse 17. And here's what Paul wrote. And you're going to feel this in the overlay of Malachi. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord... And not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as a reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. And you're going to feel that in the book of Malachi. So let's let's go to Malachi chapter 1. Let's stand together. And we're going to read Malachi 1 verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to jump over to chapter 3 verses 1 through through 5 there as well. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, Yet I love Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals on the of the desert. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord says the Lord of hosts says, They may rebuild, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eye shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now jump over to chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 5 there. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former days. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that your word is clear and um, and straightforward to us who at times, Lord, have questioned your goodness and your love for us. You're also very clear to us if we don't give you our best. And this morning, I I pray that more than um, conviction, which we will all feel, because you're kind to show us where we need to adjust things, I pray for for the power of hope to reveal to us the risen Christ. The The true plan of God, who fulfilled everything that you promised in the book of Malachi. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. now let's jump in by looking at the first point there God's love for his people now the prophet Malachi came on the scene shortly after the rebuilding of the temple so um, the temple was rebuilt in 516 BC Um, you'll remember if you've been with us for a while Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets we've just studied in the last couple weeks um, those guys encouraged and challenged the people of God to get to work they got to work and they finished the job They got things done, yet in their mind, it seemed like we did our part, but God didn't do his part. It appeared that things were going much slower than they had hoped. I mean, where was the greater glory that Haggai talked about in his book? When would God judge all the nations as Zechariah had declared? And in their waiting, they began to question God. Now, you're going to notice an interesting phrase throughout the book of Malachi. You're going to notice about nine times. And it's a phrase that comes out of the mouth of God to the people when he says this to them, but you say, and his point is basically saying, I'm revealing to you something about myself, but you people are questioning me continuously. You say something. And that's why in the beginning of the book, in their waiting and in their questioning, God begins the book and the prophecy through Malachi with a declaration of his covenantal love for them in verse 2. And notice what he says, I have loved you. And you'll see that phrase, but you say, how have you loved us? Now this is no different than many of us, that we fail to lose sight of the loving kindness and mercy of God to the Lord Jesus, that when bad things happen in our life, we question God and say, how have you loved us? Look at what has happened in my life. I'm waiting year after year for these things to happen. How have you revealed yourself to me in your love? And God is simply reminding His people once again, I have loved you. And you can feel the questioning of the people. But but you say, how have you loved us? And then God begins to go on. He reminds them of His covenantal love for them compared to the people of Esau. You can see that in the text very clearly. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now Jacob and Esau were brothers. We see that in the text. They were patriarchs or historical father figures in Israel's history. Jacob, the younger brother, experienced God's grace and favor while Esau did not. Now Jacob experienced this, if you know the story, in spite of his bad character. God showed him kindness. He did not show the same kindness to Esau. The nation of Israel descended from Jacob. But the Edomites or the people of Edom, descended from Esau. Israel experienced God's grace and favor as God's people, but the Edomites did not. God blessed Israel, but He cursed Edom. Now this is God's way of saying to the people of this time, and even in Romans chapter 9, you can read this later, it's God's way of saying that He had chosen His people, Israel, out of all the other nations of the world to be His people, and He had set His love upon them. He promised to be faithful to them. God loved Israel because He covenanted with Israel and promised to do them good. Other nations did not have the same favor that God had given to them, nor did they have the same covenantal love. Only Israel had this, and God is reminding them of this. And you can see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, when God said to them through, through the prophet Moses, when He said this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping His oath to you that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the ha, from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt these people had forgotten this covenantal promise and love of God given to them and they were questioning God's love now friends listen it's easy when things aren't going the way we've hoped or dreamed to question God's love for us it's easy It's easy to look at your life and wonder, why are bad things happening to me when I thought God had set His love upon me? But throughout the Bible and throughout the Minor Prophets, we have seen that God loves His people with a covenantal, faithful love. So listen, if you consider yourself a child of God, you are one who is a believer in Jesus Christ, God's word to you would be this, you know love by this, that He laid down His life for you. Now, the beauty of that moment is, historically, it never changes. So whenever you're questioning or pondering the covenantal kindness of God toward you, all you've got to do, all we've got to do is look back 2,000 years ago and say, nope, He laid down His life for me. And so in these moments of questioning, these moments of pondering, these moments of, of wrestling with God's love for us, We must step back and marvel at 2,000 years ago such a display of covenantal love was given to us and that will never change. God's people are the only people in the history of the world who have received grace and mercy and have a seat at God's table. God has set his love upon his people and he will never remove his covenantal love from you as one of God's people. Now just let that for a moment settle into your impatient, skeptical heart. God loved you. You can stop saying, but how have you loved me? God's response is, let's go back to Golgotha. Now it's interesting in Malachi that while the people were questioning God's love for them, the real question from God is their love for God. That leads to our next point, which is covenantal unfaithfulness. See, what you're going to notice in the book of Malachi is this irony. The people are questioning God, <clears throat> and God flips the tables and basically says, Actually, the real problem's not me. The real problem's you. Because of God's covenantal love to his people and for his people, God has given his people covenantal obligations that He places upon His people and expects them to do. God's people were to remain faithful to Him. They were to obey Him. They were to revere Him. They were to worship God alone as the God of heaven. Yet over and over again, what have we seen in the minor prophets? They've been idolatrous. They've been greedy. They've kept from God what what should be God's. Over and over again, they have violated just these simple covenantal obligations. And the burden of Malachi's prophecy is this, that God was faithful to his people because of his covenant with them, but his people were unfaithful to him. And you're going to see this throughout the book. Now, what's fascinating about the book is you're going to notice a term used over and over again in the book. It's the term covenant. You probably notice that our church is called Covenant Life Fellowship. And that's made, we've named it that way for a reason, because... Covenants with God mean life and godliness and blessing. And you see that in this book. And interestingly enough, this word covenant is used 14 times in the 12 books of the of the minor prophets. Of those 14 times, it is used 6 times alone in the book of Malachi. It is Malachi's way of saying God's covenant matters to God, but God's people have not let His covenant matter to them. He is concerned with covenantal unfaithfulness. Malachi has a burden. You can even see this in the text. He has a burden for it. And it is, It's to show God's covenantal love for God's people and God's covenantal faithfulness to His people. And it's to show their unfaithfulness to God's covenantal obligations. And when I say covenantal obligations, here's basically what I mean. When God made... Covenants with people throughout the Bible you'll read about God making covenants with different people. You know Noah's one of them Abrams one of them uh, David's one of them we're gonna study covenants sometime next year as we get into the flood in Genesis and We read about God making a covenant with Noah. We're gonna pull out of the book of Genesis and talk about how God works through Covenantal thinking when God made a covenant with somebody he always set obligations or rules of the covenant that God would do and that he expected the receiver of the covenant to do. And then he would set up blessings for obedience. So if you do this, obey, this blessing will happen. But if you don't obey, this consequence will take place. The burden in Malachi, and quite frankly, if you read all of the other prophets, this is how you have to see the prophets. They're not simply fortune-telling for something myriads down the road, They are communicating to the people of Israel as a lawyer saying to them, you have violated God's covenant. And because you violated His covenant, this is what's going to happen if you don't repent. Repent so these things don't happen. And God's point through these prophets is, God has always been faithful to His covenantal people, but His people have been unfaithful to Him. And the consequences were coming. Now in the book of Malachi, you have what's called six disputations where God disputes something about what they have said, right? They basically can be summarized in three covenantal obligations where they were unfaithful in. So let's look at those in the text. In chapter 1, verses 6 through chapter 2, verse 8, you're going to notice that he showed the the priest and the people that they had violated the the, the covenant of the priesthood and their worship. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he said that they had despised his name. And notice he says again, But you say, how have we despised your name? And God tells them, by offering polluted food on the altar and giving God the worst of your flocks for sacrifices. In chapter 8 of the same, or verse 8 of the same chapter, he challenged them to give those same offerings to the governor. Basically what he says is this. Just imagine for a moment that your president walked in the room, would he be happy with this offering you're bringing to God? And the answer is basically, it's a rhetorical question, no, he wouldn't be happy. So since he wouldn't be happy, why would you bring that offering to God when you should be bringing me something else? In chapter 1, verse 12, he said that the worship of God had become wearisome to them. And before you think, man, these crazy people, just for a moment, think about how many times you thought Sunday's my only day to sleep in. Do I have to go to church today? You can feel why this matters. In other words, they were acting as if worshiping God was a burden. And offering God their best sacrifices was a pain. Sure, I'll give God my best, but it's on my terms. That's a very Western and American thing to think about. It was also a very Eastern-minded thing to think about in the Middle East, back in 516 and earlier or later times. He said that they had violated the covenant of Levi, which meant the covenant of God with the priesthood they had violated. This covenant was basically this. God had obligated the priest to teach God's people what was good, to offer the best sacrifices to God, and to lead the people to worship God alone. And if they did this, there would be joy and peace. But if they didn't do it, it was chaotic. And God basically said to them, look around, things are chaotic because you're not leading the people about what is good. You're not offering the best sacrifices. And guess what? You've let idolatry run rampant in this country. And then God called them to respect Him, to be in awe of Him, and to instruct the people of God to give their best in worship. You can feel in this moment that God is telling them, you violated this covenant that I've given you with the priesthood and of worship. Now you're going to notice as well the covenantal consequences that we talked about earlier for violating the covenant of the priesthood. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 14 says, God said, I have no pleasure in you. Imagine for a moment if you walked into church on a Sunday morning and your pastor stood up and said, hey, I want all y'all to hear me. We're going to write a sign out front of the church that just said God's Spirit no longer resides here and He's not happy with you anymore. That's what was happening here. I will not accept your offerings. Your your blemished sacrifices will be cursed. Or chapter 2, he said, he would curse their blessings. And look at this. He would take dung and put it all over their faces so that everybody else would see. His point was, I'm going to disgrace you in such a way that everybody will notice. And the reason was because their worship had become half-hearted, their priests had become compromised, And they gave to God their leftovers. In chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, they violated the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage in the Bible is pretty simple to understand. The people of God were to marry, only marry, people who were in their faith, of their faith. And they were not to divorce, but yet be faithful to one another, to the bitter end. Yet, you can see in this chapter and in this book, that they had married the daughter of a foreign god, and they had been faithless to the wife of their youth, your wife by, what's that term? Covenant. This was a regular sin for the people of Israel. They were not to be married to unbelievers, and they were not to give in to an easy divorce culture. Yet over and over again in Israel's history, this sin continued to pop up. You can mark and just watch Israel's sin as they have different victories throughout time, and it seems like things are going really, really well. And the very next sin you'll notice is them intermixing with foreigners of idolatrous nations, and then the next sin after that is they give to idolatry. God's command to marry believers was so that they would grow and raise godly families who over generation after generation after generation would display a family of people who loved, worshipped, and obeyed the one true God and who as well displayed the glory of God to people who were faithful to God. But as these people continued to violate this covenantal obligation, they regularly gave themselves to idolatry of the spouses they had married. God's challenge to them was to be faithful to the marriage covenant. Now again, notice the curse. For violating the marriage covenant, God would cut them off from his people, chapter 2, verse 12, and their lives will be filled with injustice, wrongdoing, or violence. I think you'll find that any culture given into disrupting and trying to violate the covenant of marriage becomes a culture of violence. You don't have to look around at this culture to see that running rampant, especially with the disintegration of the family and the desire to remove the family altogether. The next covenantal issue addressed had to do with their tithes and offerings. Now, if you haven't been uncomfortable yet, prepare yourself. Right? Okay? This covenantal obligation was that they were to give God 10%, a tithe of their first, meaning their best, of their, of their flocks, their crops, and their profits. And they were to give other contributions throughout the year for the poor and the celebrations at the temple. Yet in Malachi's day, and read this very clearly, the people seem to stop their giving of their tithes and contributions. Is that on the screen? Because we yeah, we gotta read we gotta read this, right? We can't, you know. That way it's God's word, not mine. Okay. In Malachi's day, the people seem to stop giving their tithes and offering contributions, and notice what God says. They were robbing them. I don't know about you, but robbing God sounds awfully bad. And his challenge to them in the text and in history to us is to test him or trust him by bringing our tithes and our offerings to the storehouse. Now the storehouse, so we can understand, the temple had just been finished and the storehouse is next to the temple where they stored all of the tithes and offerings. And they brought their tithes and offerings to the priest who distributed to them others as they felt necessary. This was not the giver dictating the gift. This was the priest doing that as God gave them the tithes and offerings through the people. Interestingly, in this text, you're going to notice it's the only place in the Bible where God says to test him. And notice what it has to do with your money, your finances. With our money, God tells us to challenge Him, to test Him, to obey Him, and trust what He will do. We're to bring our tithes and contributions to God, and we're to say to God, Lord, we're going to trust You with the rest. Now, what's interesting in this little covenant violation is you're going to notice God does something really fascinating in this. He only gives them one covenantal consequence. That's a big one, because He says they would be cursed with a curse because they rob God. Now, that could be a lot of things, right? I mean, you're going to have boils. I don't know. Your, your money could run out. I don't know. I mean, you've got bills you can't pay. I mean, there could be a list of things that could be a curse, not a curse, right? But he only says that one little part of a covenantal curse, yet he spends most of his time on the blessing for obedience. Everybody pay attention to this. See, we have a tendency to think that giving to God is for God. That's not how God sees it. Giving to God is for you. Notice what he says in the text. He says, if they will put him to the test, he says, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. See, just like we saw in Haggai, which we saw that two weeks ago, that God's word about giving and money is basically this. Give to God what is God's, and he will meet us in ways we cannot imagine. You can feel that in that text. Now, what you'll notice about in all three areas, in in the worship, in the priesthood, in marriage, and in our money, you can feel God calling his people to give him their best. That's why I read Colossians 3 earlier. Whatever you do, do heartily. Give it your best as unto the Lord. Notice the priests did not give their best sacrifices. And the, priest and the people gave half-hearted worship. They thought their spiritual duties were drudgery and wearisome. They failed to give God their best. They failed to give God their best in their marriages and in their relationships. They were unfaithful and half-hearted in the way they cared for their spouse. And by marrying non-believers they didn't care enough about their faith to protect it for generations to come. And they failed to give God the best of their money. Rather than giving to God the first, they sometimes said, we'll give God the last if they ever gave it all. And they were robbing God. God calls His people to give Him their best. Now friends, listen, it doesn't take long to take a really quick trip into Western Christianity and just take a look at how many areas we've compromised. For some, listen, the Sunday gathering is one of the family options that we might do on a Sunday, but it's not really a priority. A personal relationship with God where we give our lives to such a king that we say, whatever we do, we want our king to dictate. So the way I handle my business activities, the way I deal with a situation that might have a conflict, however I handle my money or my life or the education of my children is in God's hands, and I'm going to do what God has directed me to do as my king is not really a priority and high on the list either. And for some, listen, the divorce culture, friends, you got to understand, it has infiltrated not just our marriages, but our dating culture. Parents, please listen. We are creating a, dear, a a very big time firestorm on our hands. Because we're teaching our kids that dating is no different than divorce. You know what divorce is? Divorce is, I marry you, I fall in love with you, and I find somebody else I might like better. Does that not sound like our dating culture today? I date somebody, we like them for a moment, and then I find somebody else who's better it comes along. I then break up with this person, I go to that person, and on and on and on it goes. And we're creating a culture of divorce rather than understanding that God is calling people to be faithful to one another for one spouse for one lifetime. And in order to do that, that's going to take some training from our families, not only mirroring and displaying what it looks like in a marriage, but as well guiding our children through dating relationships to help them compre- understand we're not just picking and choosing as you just in the whim feel it, because you're not going to do that when you get married. But we're creating a culture like that. And for some, listen, let's be honest, to talk about money from the pulpit in today's western world is almost seen as heresy or big brother digging into your pockets. And the reason for that, honestly, is because there's been a lot of bad teaching about money and a lot of bad teaching about the prosperity gospel that has really violated and hurt many of us who truly believe in God's principles about how to do God's word and God's money. And it's put a, put us on our heels. And many people say this, look, man, you should never, don't nobody should ever tell me what to do with my money. Well, My only problem with that is God did. And if God did then your pastor is obligated to speak as if God spoke. See, overriding all of these areas of covenantal unfaithfulness is is the God of the universe. See, I want you to understand this. These three areas of unfaithfulness, these were not Malachi's idea to suddenly bring up. These are not just Dave York's principles of how to just add some things. No, these are clearly in the text from God delivering things to His people. And throughout the book of Malachi, God says something about Himself that we should pay attention to. In chapter 1, verses 11 and 14, He says that God is the one who commanded these things, and He's the one who should be feared and worshipped in every nation. Meaning, for you, Christian, your God is the one who is to be feared, and you would have all to, and obeyed, and He's the one that commands these things, not just some preacher in a pulpit. So listen, before you blow off any of these things, right, and it's easy to do, we start making all the excuses in our head, well, if he knew what I had, and if he knew this, and we start doing all these things, before you do any of that, here's what I'd ask you to do, which you know me as your pastor, I ask you to do regularly, I believe you're, you're be- the best pastor of Covenant Life Fellowship is not Dave York, it's Jesus Christ. And you spend time with your great pastor, and you ask him, where have I violated some things, and where's covenantal obligations, where have I been unfaithful? And then all I'd ask you to do is make adjustments accordingly. Where does God need to change you in these areas? Now the good thing in the book of Malachi and the good thing in the Bible is that God already knows you've been unfaithful. <laughs> he already knows we've done it. See, God, God already knows, right? When I, when I look into my heart over the issues I just preached on, here's what I see in my heart. I see the challenge of every Tuesday morning and Monday morning opening up God's Word to study for you to bring you God's Word and seeing it as a textbook, not the written Word of God. I see the moments when I come in here to pray for you. I sit in that chair where Dave's sitting virtually every Tuesday through Friday mornings, and I think of myself sitting before you as a man and I think to myself, I come in here sometimes as a professional pastor, not a man dependent upon the living God. You can, you can feel it in your soul. I think of moments when I come to church and I think, "This is—I just got to do my job." Now stop, Pastor. You're, you're coming to be among God's people for whom Christ has died. Let let God deal with you on this. God already knows. He already knows. He's already seeing it. He—I don't have to check your calendar. God already has. I don't have to check your checkbook. God has done that. So make the adjustments as God would have you make it and understand, He has made a plan for your unfaithfulness. And that's our last point today, which is a plan for covenantal faithfulness. See, God is not going to leave us without hope. I'm so glad. God's plan for faithfulness and covenantal faithfulness, we're going to find, is in two things. It's in a messenger that's coming that represents God and a purified people. This is where we get to see Jesus, right? You guys know me well enough to know I'm looking for Jesus every time I get in the Old Testament text. I'm looking to get here because this is where we get hope. At the end of chapter 2, which is on the screen, the Lord seems to have had enough. He says they've wearied him with their constant questioning. And God says, God says something again, but you say, how have we wearied you? And God basically says, by your continual asking of questions. Right? Continually bombarding me with things. By calling evil good and good evil. I mean, think about it. Here are people who have heartedly worshipped the Lord, been unfaithful to God in their marriages and their families, robbed God with their money, and they were questioning God once again. And here's their question. The question is, where's the justice? When is God finally going to deal with our enemies? What's fascinating is as chapter 3 begins, God basically says... I am coming in justice, but I'm coming for you. He replied that he would suddenly come to his temple. He said that a messenger of the covenant was coming who would have such divine power as to purify the priesthood and the people's sacrifices, the very things that were violated. And he said he was coming in judgment on those who were unfaithful to him. Now, in this text, you're going to notice some things. We're introduced to one of God's answers to covenantal unfaithfulness. And one of God's plans for covenantal faithfulness is God was coming to set things right. He was coming to readjust and say, listen, we got a problem and I'm coming in my own flesh and blood and I'm going to deal with this issue. And he's going to come suddenly and he's going to come to judge unfaithful people, idolaters and the immoral. And in these verses we're introduced to to two different messengers. There's some that could say this is one messenger. The problem with that is one messenger seems to be human. The other messenger seems to be divine. The first messenger we're introduced to comes before God suddenly lands in the the temple. The second messenger is called the messenger of the covenant, but notice his abilities. He has the divine power to purify the priesthood and the sacrifices. No human can do that. And this messenger is coming on a particular day. A day that will be hard for those people in Malachi's day to endure. But God wasn't done with revealing who this messenger or what this whole thing about the messenger. In chapter 4, you got that one in? Chapter 4 verses 5 through 6, we're introduced to the great day of the Lord once again when He will judge the arrogant and the wicked And it will come on, and he says, before that awesome day, Elijah the prophet will turn the hearts of the families back to the Lord and to one another. In other words, this Elijah guy is going to come and he's going to have a reconciling work for God's people. So on this front end, you've got something really simple, pretty simple. God's plan for covenantal faithfulness is God coming to his people and before he comes, He's sending a forerunning messenger who will help reconcile some things. But there's another part to God's plan. It's in chapter 3. And notice, it's a people for God and for His glory. In chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, the Lord makes clear that among these unfaithful people, there's a group of people who fear the Lord and say to one another certain things and they begin to honor the Lord with their life. This remnant of people whom God will remember by writing their names down in the book of remembrance these are the ones who will fear his name and do as he has commanded and there will be distinction in that day with these particular people between the faithful and the unfaithful and then according to chapter 4 verse 2 these are the people who will rejoice and leap because their God is great and he will be they will be the ones whom has been who've been healed by the wings of of god when the son of righteousness arises they will trample wickedness under their feet so what you have is god's plan for faithfulness is this a forerunning messenger who will come before god lands on the earth to set things right a messenger of the covenant who will purify god's people and judge those who aren't his people and god's people in that day will be distinct and they will have victory over evil okay have we got that Now, how would the people in Malachi's day hear this? They would hear it this way. God was indeed going to come to set things right. He would judge the unfaithful. He would take care of the faithful. But before that day, Elijah, the the, the prophet who was taken away by a fiery chariot, will one day come back, and they always thought to themselves, one day Elijah will land back on earth... He'll declare some things and then the Messiah will show up. Our great King will be here. The forerunner for the Savior is Elijah and that God would send this messenger of the covenant who would have divine power to finally judge and purify our priests and purify our sacrifices just like the days of old and He would judge the faithless among us. There's a problem. If you have your Bibles, I want you to notice that the last chapter of the book of Malachi ends after six verses and you have one page generally between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see that little thin page? That thin page represents 400 years of silence. The moment Malachi finished these words, the God of the universe stopped talking. He didn't reveal anything to these people. He didn't say anything to them. He didn't send a prophet to them to say, turn, come back to me. And what you're going to notice throughout the Bible is something really fascinating about how God works. We're going to see it in the first Sunday of January when we study Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when it says, and God spoke. When God speaks, worlds are created. When God's messenger comes, the earth shakes. When God does His work, things are happening. So we may have this little page, and then suddenly we flip our Bible one direction and we land in this book of Matthew, and we read in the very first chapter of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you say, Why is that a big deal? Because in Matthew 17, verse 10, Jesus said something fascinating about Elijah the prophet. He said that Elijah did come, and it was John the Baptist. The disciples knew this very clearly. That fiery prophet who wore camel's hair and ate locusts, he called the Jewish people of the first century to turn from the very same sins you see in the people of Malachi's day. He called them to stop their immorality, to stop giving God their half-hearted worship. He called to stop giving God the the leftovers and give God the best. He confronted their rebellion against God, their arrogance and their immorality. And most of Israel did not listen to Him. And eventually, King Herod beheads John the Baptist. And then we read in John chapter 1 about the word... The spoken Word of God who was God, who was with God in the beginning. And according to John chapter 1, verse 14, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In other words, Jesus came to earth and dwelt among us. And John the Baptist was His forerunner. But Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. Jesus came to fulfill every covenantal obligation that God has placed on humans that we failed to keep. And Jesus died in our place to fulfill all of the moments when you and I failed to keep the covenantal obligations God has placed upon us. Now what's fascinating about Jesus' coming is that He, He, Jesus, is God's plan to covenantal faithfulness. A messenger, John, came before Him. Jesus landed on earth to set... Things right and do exactly as god had said he would do in malachi's day and you're going to find in romans chapter 12 verse 1 and first peter chapter 2 he came to purify a kingdom of priests and make our sacrifices acceptable to god according to titus chapter 2 jesus came to redeem people who were zealous for good works and notice chapter romans 12 verse 21 who will overcome evil with good does that not sound like the people that he said would fear his name And Jesus' coming according to John chapter 1 was a judgment on the unfaithful who in that time of His coming rejected Him. And there's a distinction between those who walk in light and those who walk in darkness. Does that not sound like what Malachi said that that day was coming? Friends, God's plan for covenantal unfaithfulness is found in Christ. And it's found in a people that have been purified by his great name and his great blood. So where has your waiting on God led you to skepticism? According to Malachi and according to God. But you say, and God has refuted every one of your skeptical accusations. Where has your skepticism led you to compromise? Compromise covenantal obligations that God has for you. And you know it right now. You know right where you sit that God is doing business with your heart. And you know where those areas are. Do you trust in God's plan for making you right with God through Christ? See, if you don't, listen, we would just charge you, believe in Christ. Put your trust in Christ. It's the only way you can be made right with God. It's the only way that you can have the power to obey God and, and if you will, have the power of God to be pleasing in His sight. And if you're a Christian, listen, are you living by the power of God that He's given you to give God your best? Are Sundays just another day of the week for you? Maybe it gets a chance for you to take your day off and finally you know, have some rest and see all the things or do you see Sunday as the Lord's day as an indication of saying to God you own all my time and one way I'm revealing to you that you own it all is I'm getting to church I'm seeing people and I'm worshiping God do you see the first part of your day or the last part of your day of some moment to give to God to say to God Lord you own my time how about your money how about your marriage and your family is that how you see these things that you're offering these things these are God's <laughs> they're not yours They're God's. Because Christ has come, God's plan for covenantal faithfulness, as God's plan for covenantal faithfulness, God calls us to revere Him, be faithful to Him, and give Him our best. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Let's pray. As we're praying this morning, if there's areas in your life like there are in mine that the Lord is <clears throat> stirring you to confess and repent and change, then this morning just just acknowledge that before God. Let me just give you this thought. He already knows. He's the one that brought it up. And so this morning, would you just confess your sin to God, your, your conviction to God, and believe with all your heart if you're a child of God, He will not only forgive you, but He'll give you the power to change. And if you're not a Christian this morning, maybe the Lord just stirred you that all of a sudden you realize your life is not your own. It belongs to God. He's the one that created you. And you need to give your life to Christ. Father, thank You that You shepherd Your people. And thank You that You care enough to reveal to us the areas of our lives that need adjustment and the areas of our lives that need encouragement. Thank you for getting into the hidden closets of our hearts and revealing to us where there's areas of unfaithfulness. And thank you for revealing to us that we have been redeemed by a price and we have a great Savior who has empowered us to change that we don't have to stay there. So, Father, thank you. Work in your people. And, Christian, do business with your God. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, Visit us on the web at www.clfrosberg.com.